If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello once again. Maybe this episode should be entitled Bradbury 102, because just a few days ago, at the time of recording, it was Ray Bradbury's 102nd birthday. Now, on that day, which was the 22nd of August 2022, I took to the airwaves of Facebook and did a live version of Bradbury 100. Quite a few people joined me live, and a few more people have watched the recording since on Facebook and on YouTube. But I promised that I would also take the audio from that talk and make a conventional, in inverted commas, a conventional episode of the Bradbury 100 audio podcast. So, that's what you're going to hear today. You have to bear in mind that my talks usually are quite heavily illustrated. So, there may be some things that I say in this audio recording that you have to use your imagination to picture what it is that I'm talking about. But if you're curious, by all means head over to YouTube, look up Bradbury 101 which is the name of my YouTube channel, and you'll find the fully illustrated video version. Anyway, that's enough of me introducing myself. Let's get on with the talk, which I titled Dandelion Wine, A Life's Work. Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine, A Life's Work. Now, why am I doing that? Well, Ray published this novel in 1957. But he started work on it probably about 13 years prior to that. And he published a sequel to it, so-called sequel, Farewell Summer, in 2006, when he was 86 years old. Now, the average reader will assume that he wrote Dandelion Wine in his younger life, and then sat down and wrote a sequel in his 80s. But that's not what happened. What actually happened is that Ray worked on one book, which was eventually split into multiple works. So most of what I'm going to be talking about here is Dandelion Wine, the famous novel from 1957. But when we get towards the end, I'll start talking about the leftover parts of Dandelion Wine, which is what eventually became some other books. So Dandelion Wine was published in 1957 by Doubleday, but he had originally done the deal with the editor at Doubleday about five years earlier, but he struggled with it. What he was going to do with the book is what he'd done previously with The Martian Chronicles. He was going to take a set of previously published short stories, 
with a common thread, a common background, and he was going to stitch them together to make something of a novel. The phrase that Ray often used was half-cousin to a novel. So he always said that The Martian Chronicles was half-cousin to a novel. It, I mean, The Martian Chronicles looks like a novel, but the first edition didn't say that it was a novel. It just said double-day science fiction. Anyone familiar with the individual stories in The Martian Chronicles might look at it and say, this isn't a novel, this is a collection of short stories. So it was some weird hybrid. The intention with this work, Dandelion Wine, although it originally had some other titles, which we'll come to in a moment, with Dandelion Wine, the intention was similar, but there was more determination to make this into a novel. And the sort of shorthand name for this was the Illinois novel, because it was set in a small town in Illinois. As far as the reader is concerned, we got this one book that came out in 1957, Dandelion Wine. What's in the book, however, is, as I say, mostly a bunch of pre-published short stories. Some of these are within the book pretty much intact as complete short stories that you may have read in a magazine somewhere, or that later on might have been published as separate short stories in an anthology or in one of Ray's short story collections. But in the book itself, in Dandelion Wine, you won't find any of these titles listed. There isn't anywhere in the book that says, this novel incorporates the following short stories. And nor is there a table of contents, nor are there any chapter headings. So, unlike the Martian Chronicles, where you can easily distinguish one previously published story from another, and you can identify linking passages that Ray has written to transition us from one story to another, with Dandelion Wine, it's all much more seamless. Some of the short stories are split up, and spread out through the book. Some of them are rewritten from the original magazine stories. Some of them are more or less intact. And in fact, some pieces were originally published as non-fiction. In other, in other words, they were published as if they were essays or remembrances. And then Ray converted them into a kind of a fictional voice uh, for the purpose of the book. Now, I'm not going to go through every single story... I'm going to pick a few choice ones, uh, but I'll mention most of them as we go through. Before we do that, the title of the book. Ray loved to play with titles, and during his drafting process, he always tried out different titles, and eventually one would stick. Sometimes it might be his preference of title, sometimes the publisher's, who knows. Among the titles he considered for this work, or this set of works, was The Small Assassins. Other possible titles, The Blue Remembered Hills, which comes from a A.E. Houseman quote. I think it comes from a Shropshire lad. And I think Dennis Potter, the British playwright and uh, TV writer, wrote a play or a film with this title as well much later. But Summer Morning, Summer Night is another one, another one of these titles that Ray kept for quite a long time before eventually settling on Dandelion Wine as the title of the book. Before delving into the contents of the book, 
let's think about the autobiographical nature of Dandelion Wine. People often say it's an autobiographical novel. And it is in the sense that it is set in a a town which is clearly Waukegan, Illinois. The topography of the town, the layout of the streets, the ravine running through it, all of that is from Ray's real hometown of Waukegan, Illinois. can't say Illinois. I stumble on that every time. But of course, the characters in the book are fictional characters. They're not called Ray Bradbury. They're called Douglas Spaulding and Tom Spaulding and um, all sorts of other characters, all with fictionalised names. So it's not an autobiography. It is inspired by a real place and real events and a real personal history. But it isn't true. When Ray was working on the book, the publisher suggested that to help keep it clear in his head what the story was, who the characters were and so on, he might find it useful to draw a little plan of the town, a map. Um, there is a an enlargeable version of this on my website, so you can have a look at that. But it's got things in like Main Street, Courthouse, and then the Ravine, which is the frightening place that sort of divides one side of the town from the other. And then there's a a kind of a grid-like set of streets, and Ray's written in the locations of some of the key characters. So there's Lavinia Nebs's house, Leo Orfman's house, and Grandpa's house, and so on. The interesting thing, and I did this on my website some years ago, um, when you compare this to Waukegan, Illinois, It's quite shockingly similar. And this really points up that Ray was basing this, this book, on a real-life place. There are scenes where characters in the book go to Main Street and they visit the theatre there. And in Waukegan, that's how it is. The famous Genesee Theatre is across the ravine. You can get to it from the other side of town by going across the ravine. I've actually done that. I I visited Waukegan once and once only, and I did visit the ravine. And I was, as part of my visit, visit, I was accosted by a homeless person who tried to extract money from me. Um, So I can see that when Ray presents the ravine as being a scary place, he's not far wrong, even today. Anyway, let's have a look at some of Dandelion Wine and talk about its origins. Now, I've said that much of what's in the book was previously published as short story. And I'm going through these in the order in which these stories appear in the book. The first recognisable previously published story in the book is called Dandelion Wine. And it was published in Gourmet magazine. Now, Ray previously was known for his sort of horror stories, which were typically published in magazines such as Weird Tales. He was known for science fiction stories, which had been published in things like Planet Stories, Thrilling Wonder Stories, all those uh, startling stories, all those wonderfully named um, cheap pulp magazines. But he'd also begun to branch out 
by 1957, he was being published with some frequency in the Saturday Evening Post, which was a much more prestigious magazine, published weekly and sort of a family magazine with lots of non-fiction articles and uh, the odd piece of fiction in there as well. But by this time, Ray was writing stories that really fitted many genres and no genre. And he always said that he didn't write to the market. So he didn't say, here's Planet Stories, I'll write a story for Planet Stories. That's not how he did it, not by this time of his career. What he did is he wrote what he wanted to write. And then, having completed it, he would consider, where would this best fit? So uh, inevitably, he would have a hierarchy of um, markets that he would consider, and something like Saturday Evening Post would be at the top. Also, um, a bit later, maybe Playboy would be at the top, one of the best, uh, one of the highest paying markets of all. So he would try to play stories with those, and then there would be lower tier magazines that he would consider if those rejected or didn't want the story, and then he would work down and down. Wouldn't necessarily do that himself. By this point, he had an agent, and that would be the agent's job to find out, where can I place this story? Where would this be a good fit? Now, the stories from Dandelion Wine, although some of them have horror elements, none of them are really horror. None of them are science fiction, so none of them are really genre as such. There's a kind of a a sense that they are magic realism, but that phrase didn't really exist back in those times. So what do you do with a story about a grandfather and his grandkids who make wine out of dandelions, since that involves making things and... uh, having a recipe, maybe you'd send that to a magazine that specialises in food and recipes, hence Gourmet magazine. I don't know, but there you go. That's where Dandelion Wine appeared. The next story that is recognisable from its previous appearance is Summer in the Air. And this is the one about the boy who kind of obsesses over a pair of tennis shoes and won't shut up until his parents buy them for him. Quite a well-known story. It's been anthologised widely since it was first published. And its first appearance was in the Saturday Evening Post, which I mentioned a moment ago. Um, Family magazine, published weekly, often had uh, really high-quality artwork um, from Norman Rockwell or other uh, artists of a similar style. Uh, what's interesting about this story is it really sets the tone of the town, the idea of having gone to the cinema, passing a shop, seeing things in the window, all of that, and all of the running around that goes on in the story. Um, it, If you wanted to take one story out of Dandelion Wine and present it as a kind of a a definitive extract from the book, this is possibly the one you would choose. But if we look at this story closely in its original form and in the form that it appears in the book, we can get a sense of some of the editorial challenges that Ray had set for himself in taking these pre-published stories and then adapting them for the novel. Uh, 
Now, in the novel, we have the central character of Douglas. And Douglas has a younger brother, Tom. And we follow their adventures, but we mostly follow Douglas. He's our key character. He's the one who learns most things about the world. But this story, published just a year and a half prior to Dandelion Wine, doesn't have Douglas as the central character. It has Tom as the central character. Now, that's not to say that it's Douglas's brother. It's more that he chose to call the character in this story Tom. But when he put this story in the book, he already had a Tom. So he changed the Tom in the story to Douglas. So let me show you the opening to the original story, and then we'll have a look at the changes that Ray had to make. Late at night, going home from the show with his mother and father, Tom saw the tennis shoes in the bright store window. He glanced quickly away, but his ankles were seized and his feet were suspended. The earth spun. The shop warnings slammed their canvas wings overhead with the thrust of his body running. His mother and father walked quietly on either side of him. Tom walked backward, watching the tennis shoes in the midnight window left behind. It was a nice movie, said mother. Tom murmured. It was. But for the novel, late that night, going home from the show with his mother and father and his brother Tom, Douglas saw the tennis shoes in the bright store window. He glanced quickly away, but his ankles were seized and his feet were suspended. Oh no, his ankles were seized, his feet suspended, then rushed. The earth spun, the shop awnings slammed their canvas wings overhead with the thrust of his body running. His mother and father and brother walked quietly on both sides of him. Douglas walked backward, watching the tennis shoes in the midnight window left behind. It was a nice movie, said mother. Douglas murmured, it was. So you can see how much effort is involved in converting just really just one paragraph for the novel's context. The novel is about Douglas and Douglas has a brother, whereas the, the Tom in the original story was an only child from what we can tell. So that kind of rewriting is something that Ray had to do. Now, he was very familiar with that. He'd done a lot of that with the Martian Chronicles. But where it's different in the Martian Chronicles is that he, in the Martian Chronicles, allows multiple viewpoints. He therefore has stories with completely different sets of characters who don't necessarily ever meet because he's really laying down a series of events, a series of snapshots, all involving their own uh, special characters, if you like. But in Dandelion Wine, he's trying to make a novel. He's trying to have a unified plot. He's trying to have characters that run continuously throughout the book and characters who learn and develop and all of those usual things that we expect in a novel. So there's a lot of work involved in adapting. Another example of this is The Season of Sitting which is another one of these identifiable standalone stories within the book. Curious thing here is that the magazine appearance from 1951 
isn't even presented as if it's a work of fiction. It's presented as if it's a non-fiction essay. It begins with an introductory paragraph where the author says, I remember this. So these are recollections by an author, presumably Ray and his own recollections. And the rest of it talks about his grandfather. He actually uses those two words, his grandfather. Now, when this comes into the novel, it's no longer written in that first-person reminiscence because Dandelion Wine is written in the third person throughout by an unnamed narrator who is not part of the story. So it's a kind of an omniscient narrator, but with a limited point of view because the narrator of Dandelion Wine is most of the time looking over the shoulder of Douglas Spaulding because he's the central character. But um, the narrator is not Douglas. The narrator is separate from Douglas and the whole book is written in the third person. But The Season of Sitting was written first person as a personal reminiscence. So it's really a non-fiction essay that's been converted for the purpose of the book. So you can see this is not straightforward. And in addition to doing this kind of adaptation, what Ray also did was write some new material plus a load of linking material that allows us to bridge from one story to another or from one location to another. Now here's another one that needed some significant reworking, and that's The Night. And this one was published in Weird Tales because this is quite an old story. Ray wrote this one in his 20s. Uh, 1946 is when it appeared in Weird Tales. And so it was another 10 years, 11 years before it turned up in Dandelion Wine, but in a different form. Now, Weird Tales was much more of a pulp magazine uh, rather than the glossy or slick magazines that Ray was publishing in 10 years later. Um, and through Weird Tales, he really built his reputation as a writer of quality fantasy and horror stories. But in July 46, he hadn't been at it for very long, and therefore his name is not on the cover. Other authors are there on the cover. Manly Wade Wellman, who, which is a name that's still remembered today. Also on this, Seabury Quinn. Not sure that many people will remember Seabury Quinn. But where's Ray Bradbury? He's in this magazine. He's not on the cover. He's not famous at this time. But inside, like a lot of stories in Weird Tales, he got a lovely illustration that was provided by Boris Dolgov. This is the story in Dandelion Wine where Douglas has gone off to town with his friends and young brother Tom is allowed to go out and buy ice cream. But Tom and Mother begin to worry because Douglas hasn't come back yet and it's getting rather late. He should be back by now. And they're afraid that he may have been, well, abducted uh, in the ravine. So this story was originally published as a standalone piece. Again, interesting the transformation that Ray made because if you look at this in its original form, you see that it's written in the second person. So you are a child in a small town. You are, to be exact, eight years old, and it's growing late at night. 
late for you, accustomed to bedding in at nine or nine thirty, once in a while perhaps begging mum or dad to let you stay up later to hear Sam and Henry on that strange radio that was popular in this year of 1927. But most of the time you're in bed and snug at this time of night. So with this story, Ray is making you feel comfortable, snug in bed before he later sends you out into the ravine. It's a very effective and very chilling tale um, to be presented in this form. But in the book, this you that's being referred to, that becomes Tom. The story is recast into a more conventional third-person narration, and the protagonist of the story becomes Tom. So again, rewriting, recasting of the story to make it more suitable for Ray's purpose within Dandelion Wine, the novel. Now, as we continue on through these, I think what I mostly want to do is draw your attention to the really rather bizarre set of magazines that a lot of these stories originally appeared in. This one, The Lawns of Summer, which is one of those stories that involves people cutting grass. You know, one of the sort of running themes of dandelion wine is the idea that people are out there with the lawnmower and you've got the smell of fresh, fresh cut grass. Well, this is one of those stories, but look where it first appeared. It was in Nation's Business, a general magazine for businessmen, for goodness sake. And it gets a lovely double-page spread in there, a beautiful piece of artwork with a a youngish man there with his mechanical lawnmower and an older man looking out of the upstairs window, the attic window, I suppose that is. And what's really nice about this, although it's a a monochrome uh, piece of art there, there's some green in there. You know, it's not a full colour piece of artwork, but they've put some green, which is really nice, really effective for the lawn and the trees and all of that. Really sums up that summery feeling. It's really good. And this one also has... Uh, a nice little bio of Ray. This, so this is from May 1952. Ray was 31 years old. And here's what they say about Ray. Ray Bradbury says that he might be called a split personality, spending half his time on Mars, half on Earth, half in the year 1999 and half in 1928. And it goes on to say that um, this story, The Lawns of Summer, is typical of his, his interest in um, Illinois of the 1920s. But it also refers to his two books, uh, because at that point, May 1952, he had published two mainstream books with a mainstream publisher, The Martian Chronicles, The Illustrated Man. In the magazine, they get it slightly wrong. They say his two books, The Illustrated Man and The Martian Man. <laughs> so a little bit of a mistake there. Uh, next story, The Happiness Machine, comes from the Saturday Evening Post originally. Well, I say originally. This was published almost simultaneously with the novel. The novel came out, I think, on the 7th of September, officially. And this issue of the Post is dated the 14th of September. That's close enough for this to be a simultaneous publication. What's interesting is that The Happiness Machine in The Post is one complete story. The same material in the book is kind of split into two sections. It's sort of interleaved with some other story. 
The Happiness Machine is that one about uh, the guy who's determined to create happiness. And from the look of it, you might think this is one of Ray's science fiction stories. You've got a guy there with his test meter, his gas cylinder, his oil can, a load of electrical switch gear, and his wife is sitting in what looks like a, a, a cubicle, almost like a voiceover booth or something like that. You might think that this is a story about technology being called The Happiness Machines. And it sort of is because Leo Orfman, the main character, is an inventor. But of course, by the end of the story, he realises the happiness machine that he's been looking for is his family. It is already a thing that generates happiness. And he's kind of happy himself when he makes that realisation. Other places where these stories appeared, uh, Season of Disbelief appeared in Collier's magazine. Ray had published a number of stories in there over the years. And the last, the very last, this is the one that's sometimes republished as The Time Machine. This is about Colonel Freely, the old man who has memories of the American Civil War. And that's one of the things that I think comes across very clearly in Dandelion Wine. We're sitting here now in the 21st century. We, some of us anyway, have um, lived on this planet at the same time that Ray Bradbury was on this planet. Ray Bradbury lived on this planet at the same time that there were people who remembered the Civil War. So that's really giving us a chain of memory, if you like. This story appeared in The Reporter, which is, I gather, a, a rather serious um, magazine of news and um, reportage. And the story is in there, and they've called it a short story for Memorial Day, which, OK, fair enough, that's a... Um, a good way of placing the story and giving it some relevance within this magazine. But Ray didn't write in that way. He didn't write the story for Memorial Day. He wrote it because it was a, a good yarn to tell and he enjoyed writing it. And then it gets sent out and this magazine picks it up because it sees the potential as being a story for Memorial Day. Moving on to the trolley. This is the one about the um, the tram that runs through Greentown, Illinois. This one appeared in Good Housekeeping. So another one of these women's magazines. And um, Ray made the cover of this one by 1955. He's beginning to become a name as a writer. So he's on the cover. Uh, not first billing. That goes to John P. Markand. Who is he? I don't know. Then Ray Bradbury. And then 14 pages on closet space and special salads for summer suppers. So there you go. Ray Bradbury ranked higher than closet space and salads. And then we get to another one which appears in Collier's. And this is The Window. And this is the one, I believe, I think this is one also known as Calling Mexico. And the idea is that you might be in your small town in Waukegan or Greentown, but you can phone somebody in Mexico and you can hear the sounds from their window and it can take you there. It can transport you there. This happens several times in the book. People are transported in time and in place because of things they are told or things that they hear. And it's one of, I think, one of Ray's unique features as a writer is his ability to depict that in his fiction. 
Collier's, again, sort of a family magazine, something like the Saturday Evening Post, um, well known for publishing serious articles. In the 50s, it published a whole series on space flight before there even was any space flight. And that inspired uh, Walt Disney to do a, a series of TV documentaries about space flight. Very influential set of articles from Collier's. This particular issue that carried the window in 1950 also carried an article about the risk of atomic war. So Hiroshima, US, what would it be like if the bomb was dropped on New York City? The Swan, this is the story of the young-ish man who has a kind of a date with an old woman. And uh, this one first appeared in Cosmopolitan. Again, a lot of these stories appearing in women's magazines. The stories are a lot softer than some of the horror and science fiction stuff that he'd been writing a decade earlier. And he managed to branch out now into these more sophisticated magazines. Probably the most well-known story from Dandelion Wine and one which has been anthologised many times, and it's been adapted for radio and television umpteen times, is The Whole Town Sleeping. It dates from 1950. This is the one about Lavinia Nebs, who's just been to town with her friends. I think they've been to the theatre or the cinema. And Lavinia decides to take a shortcut to get home. So she goes across the ravine. Now, the ravine is reputedly the place where the lonely one hangs out and, uh, well, kills people. Very powerful story, very effective piece of suspense writing, and it's no wonder that it's been adapted and ripped off many times. This isn't just a fictional character in Dandelion Wine. There really was a criminal in Waukegan called the Lonely One. I tracked down the Lonely One as best I could. I did this years ago, 2009. I did this on my website. I called it Revealed the Lonely One. And I also did a, a podcast episode about it. And what drove me to do, to do the, um, the blog post was that in Sam Weller's biography of Ray Bradbury, the Bradbury Chronicles, he says that the Lonely One was never caught. Whereas in the book he's a serial killer, in real life he was just a petty cat burglar. But he didn't get off scot-free. He did get caught. I found this in simply by looking in old newspapers. Just to rattle through a, a few remaining stories, Goodbye Grandma is one of the most effective emotional pieces in the book first appeared in the Saturday Evening Post just a few months before Dandelion Wine came out in an issue with a really nice Norman Rockwell cover and beautifully illustrated uh, with a double page spread. And goodbye, Grandma. Grandma is a character sort of always there in the background in Dandelion Wine. And she's presented as being someone who can't do enough for you. Uh, so she looks after the children. She does the cooking. She goes up on the roof and repairs it when needed. So Grandma is really very much the, the life and soul of family life in Greentown. And the last identifiable story in the book is Dinner at Dawn. And that comes from 
a magazine appearance, Every Woman. So again, another woman's magazine appearance for these stories. So, Dandelion Wine, a novel by Ray Bradbury, published in 1957. But, originally, it would have been a much bigger book. Ray was trying to make one book out of all of his ideas of Waukegan. He had the story of Douglas learning about death and having to confront death for the first time. He had the story of the long, glorious summer of 1928. But he also had the story of youth versus age. He had the gang of children who would um, kind of gang up on the old men who tried to rule their lives in the small town. Now that, there are remnants of that in the, in the novel, in Dandelion Wine, but most of that was taken out because Ray was finding it very impossible to, to tie all of these things together and he I think procrastinate is probably the wrong word, but he originally promised the book to the publisher in 1952, and it took five years for him to get to a publishable manuscript, or at least one that he was willing to give up and say, I'm finished. During that time, he tried to weave these things together in different ways and struggled with it. He came to a, a, an agreement with the publisher that, well, actually there might be two books here. So for a while he was working on one book as being a set of short stories set in Greentown, and that would be followed by the novel, the Greentown novel. So that would allow him to take some of the stories out that were difficult to weave in, publish them separately as a kind of a taster for the novel, and then readers would know that very shortly afterwards there would be the novel follow-up. In the end, that short story collection didn't happen, but the novel did, and that's really what comes out as Dandelion Wine in 1957. But there's a whole bunch of other material that Ray, well, I was going to say doesn't know what to do with, but he's got a whole load of discarded material at this point. And nearly 50 years later, he publishes the sequel, Farewell Summer. On the cover of the first edition, it says, The eagerly anticipated sequel to Dandelion Wine. Well, I don't know who it was who was eagerly anticipating it, because most readers did not know that there was anything in the works. And most people would assume that, oh, he's now written the sequel. But no, this is the other half of Dandelion Wine, effectively. He worked on it periodically over the years, from 57 to 2006, when it eventually came out. Even that doesn't collect every piece of the Greentown fiction. So there were some leftovers, and they were mopped up in another book, and that's Summer Morning, Summer Night. So this is a collection of some short stories that had previously been published, some short stories that hadn't been published, but also loads of little fragments, so things that were written but never turned into full stories, or maybe they were written as a linking passage between one part of Dandelion Wine and another, so they're all gathered here. Some readers of this book must be a bit baffled that some of the bits in there look like offcuts, and that's exactly what they are, essentially. So we have these three books that gather most of the material 
together that was originally capable of being a single book. Can you reconstruct that original book? I don't think so. Um, I've looked at some of Ray's manuscripts. I have browsed through the manuscripts for Farewell Summer, and it would be almost impossible to unwind everything that Ray did. He did keep a lot of material, but some material went missing over the years. What he would tend to do as he assembled a book and parts of the manuscript were no longer relevant to the book, they would go into a discard collection. And so you would have the manuscript would be a live document that he would keep working on, and then bits that didn't end up in the book went into the discard pile. Now, he would take those discards and he would then rework that into a new manuscript, which became Farewell Summer. But I don't think there is any way on earth that you could unwind all of this. There is actually one other book which has some more fragments, and that's Greentown, Tinseltown. So this is, again, it's a collection of fragments, mostly, and some poetry. And the first half of the book um, has got some reminiscence about Greentown, but then it goes into a whole load of poems. And about halfway through the book, it switches over to being some essays, some pieces of fiction. There's some interviews in there as well. But it's all themed around Greentown, Illinois. And some parts of this, not all of it by any means, but some parts of this uh, are, contains fragments of the original Dandelion Wine project. Referring back to Ella and Tuponts, this is something that's in Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction, this scholarly study of Ray's work, kind of presents how Ray's ideas work. They essentially trace all of this work and a load of other work that Ray did back to an original outline of ideas that Ray put together in 1944 and which he titled A Child's Garden of Terror. So, starting from A Child's Garden of Terror in 1944, we're talking at least 62 years between that initial idea and the publication of the sequel novel, The Other Half of dandelion wine. And that's why I've been saying that this lot is a life's work. So there you go. That's pretty much all I can tell you about dandelion wine. Actually, I've got more that I could tell you. And on my website, I've got a page dedicated to dandelion wine. So you can have a look on there and you'll find there's more background information, many more images as well. Um, and on all of Ray's other books and uh, everything he's ever done pretty much is on there. So that was the live talk on Dandelion Wine, which I gave originally on Facebook Live on Ray's birthday, the 22nd of August 2022. And as I said at the beginning, maybe I should have called this Bradbury 102. And that brings us to the end of this audio podcast episode. I'll be back over the next few weeks with more episodes. I've got some short episodes which address single stories or single parts of Ray's work. I've got some interviews and I've got, I promise you, the true story of Ray's Uncle Lester. So I look forward to seeing you next time on Bradbury 100. 
Bye for now. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bye.